This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast here on the AHP Digital Radio Network, the only dedicated hunting, shooting and fishing radio show here in Australia. If you'd like to find out more about AHP, visit australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. If you would like to email us, then you can go to the website and click on the contact icon. Or alternatively, you can email me directly at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to listen to the Australian Hunting Podcast, you can visit the website and click on the archived podcast link. You can also subscribe to the Australian Hunting Podcast on iTunes for automatic updates. Make sure you leave a comment and rate us five stars on iTunes. That would be much appreciated. On Facebook, you can find us under Australian Hunting Podcast, where listeners are sharing ideas, thoughts and opinions, as well as photos and videos. Twitter.com forward slash AH podcast if you'd like to follow our Twitter feed. You can also check out my videos on YouTube under the name Aussie Feral Control. Alternatively, all social media links can be found on the website. Everyone knows I love my listeners, but I've got especially some extra special love for my donating listeners. If you'd like to donate or do a monthly subscription to the show, go to the website and click on the donate button on the right-hand side of the main page and show your support, which is always appreciated. That helps us keep the lights on in this joint and pay those bills. We have over 65 hours of free podcasting audio content to date for you all to enjoy. Share the Australian Hunting Podcast with your friends and family and get as many people as you know into hunting, shooting and fishing as possible so they can enjoy this fantastic lifestyle that we all love. So as usual, without further ado, let's get into my interview with today's guest. This is Rod Drew, CEO of Field and Game Australia. This is Rob Fickling from Beyond the Divide and Maroka 30. Hi, this is Col Allison, hunter, journalist for 42 years and a shooter. Hi, this is Russell Mark, Olympic gold medalist. This is Charlie Jacoby from Field Sports Britain. Hey everybody, it's Tom Knapp and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Very pleased to have Blair Hagen, the Executive Vice President of the Canadian National Firearms Association. Blair, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Hey, Jason. It's a pleasure to do this. No worries. Thank you very much. I guess tell us about yourself. I guess for people that don't, you know, give us a bit of background about yourself. I mean, do you hunt, shoot, fish, all of the above, or what do you enjoy for yourself? Oh, oh boy! I, I I don't really do in any of that uh, at the moment. It's it's kind of it's kind of the curse of gun activists. Uh, you, you just don't have time. Uh, yeah, uh, it, and I really regret it. But at this point in time, you know, uh, political action is is a lot more important than actually uh, enjoying you know the sport. Um, when I shot, I used to shoot stuff like IDPA, international defensive uh, handgun. Uh, you know, three gun close close yep. quarter carbine stuff, and uh, I, but you know, in in the past few years, I just I, I have to admit I have not done much shooting. I've been uh, uh, vice president of uh, executive vice president of Canada's National Farms Association for about two years now, 
Previous to that, I was uh, national president. Uh, the organization, after uh, after the uh, passing away of our, our one of our founders or <laughs> patriarchs of the organization, Dave Tomlinson, in 2007, I, I became uh, national president uh, to replace him. Previous to that, I was uh, vice president, and of course, I served in exec- executive uh, capacities in uh, in uh, British Columbia as well. So I've been at this a while. Yeah. How did you uh, get involved with the Canadian National Firearms Association? Well, back in, back in uh, the early 1990s, and uh, it was really a, p- a pivotal period, uh, I, I guess not only in Canada, but across the world. That was when the uh, I, uh, civil disarmament movement was really at its apex, and we saw this in uh, you know, the UK, Australia, uh, the United States, and Canada, where uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, domestic gun control agendas being brought in and coordinated from uh, uh, groups like IANTA and uh, under the uh, UN Small Arms Action Program. And uh, at that time, there was a, a bit of a, a, a political uh, upheaval going, in can- uh, going on in Canada as well. In, in the early 1990s, it was actually, and this is similar to Australia, in the early 1990s, yeah. all of this uh, actually got started in Canada by uh, the uh, progressive conservative government of the day. And, you know, you hear the name uh, conservative. Well, I mean, they, they, they've got to be pro-gun rights. Wasn't the case with this party um, all through the, uh, the, the 1980s. And, and actually, you know, from the, from the 1970s and the 1980s, the progressive conservative party just, just became pretty much alike in social policy to all the other federal parties to one degree or another. And that included on things like gun control. And, you know, you hear these tales of, you know, Canadian gun control being, uh, you know, basically a, uh, 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 you know, a, a national motherhood and apple pie issue. Well, it's Canada. Of course they have gun control. They're not the United States. Well, that party uh, sort of adopted a, a gun control agenda in the, in, uh, the late 1980s as uh, largely from the results of uh, uh, an incident uh, it was sort of our our Port Arthur, uh, December in 1989, the uh, the murders at Lacole Polytechnique in Montreal, where uh, Mark Lapine uh, murdered 14 female engineering students. Yep. That uh, that was uh, probably the main catalyst for it. There were others. Um, there was uh, there were several high profile shootings uh, all through the late 1980s, and, and also the situation in the United States was really affecting Canada as well because you'd, you'd watch the you know the evening news and. Uh, you know, there'd be scenes of gang shootings in L.A. and stuff like that, and it really, it really had a bearing on the, the the national agenda towards gun control. So those incidents, plus the uh, uh, the Oka crisis, that was the uh, uh, the Indian uprising uh, at uh, on the uh, at the Indian reservation in Oka, Quebec, uh, where there was a lot of hard hardware displayed, really gave the initiative uh, for uh, the government of the day to bring forward a gun control law. And that was done under the auspices of the uh, Justice Minister at the time, Kim Campbell. And anyways, a lot that came out of that, uh, Bill C-17, it uh, imposed a lot of restrictions on, on, on firearms and firearms owners. There were, uh, it was kind of an assault weapons ban where a lot of military-style semi-automatics were, were reclassified. Uh, and under the Canadian system, there's three classifications of firearms. There's non-restricted firearms, which are basically regular rifles and shotguns, restricted firearms, which are handguns, and, and, and certain uh, rifles, which are prescribed as restricted, principal one being AR-15s, and prohibited firearms, uh, which are uh, generally uh, things like you know machine guns, converted automatics, and uh, certain other uh, things like handguns and, prohib- uh, yeah. and semi-automatic rifles. 
short-barreled handguns and uh, handguns of 25 and 32 caliber are currently prohibited in Canada. Now, the difference in Canada, uh, between Canada and other places where uh, these type of agendas have taken place is there were no mass confiscations. So basically, when the law came down, uh, you were given op- an opportunity to, to register the firearm. And if you did and received a registration for it, you got to keep it. And you were grandfathered for the ownership of that firearm, and grandfathered owners can uh, also uh, purchase and trade within that class. Yeah. So nobody at that time... Uh, uh, really lost anything. If they heard about the law, if they knew the requirements of the law and they abided by them, they, they, they kept it. But of course, there was a lot of confusion, not only on the part of owners, but also law enforcement and bureaucracy, the people who were enforcing these laws. And, and, and people did lose firearms on an individual basis and, and didn't get them back. But, you know, that being said, I have to say we did not suffer the, the same type of confiscations that, uh, that, that happened elsewhere in places like the UK and Australia. I got involved uh, with NFA at the time. At, at, it, as a result of this law, I got involved with the uh, the Reform Party of Canada, which sort of sprang up at that time in, uh, as, as an opposition to the Progressive Conservatives, uh, which basically lost support. They, they lost their court-based support based on the social agendas that they were pursuing, especially in Western Canada, uh, which uh, there, uh, had, had a lot of grievance, grievances, political grievances with the federal government in the East for a long time. So I got involved with the Reform Party of Canada and worked to get them elected, um, which yeah. was kind of kind of successful in as much as we defeated the Progressive Conservatives in 1993 uh, in the 19, 1993 federal election. And not only was it uh, uh, did we defeat them, but we definitively de- defeat them. We reduced them to three seats in Parliament. They didn't even get official party status, so they went from a, a, a majority. <laughs> of, they held a majority of seats in Parliament to three seats. Wow. Yeah, and uh, you know, and partly based over the gun issue because they legislated against gun owners. Uh, they thought it uh, was going to be uh, a very popular thing to do, and certainly the you know the mainstream media the day gave them uh, you know full support in the agendas that they took. But it it, it had the effect of completely undermining their support, uh, reducing the three seats they lost the government, and the the party sort of stra- strangled on for about ten years after that until it was finally uh, the remnants were finally uh, folded into the uh, the new conservative party in uh, two thousand four. Um, but I remember very vividly at the time, uh, my predecessor, Dave Tomlinson, uh, the president of NFA, identifying two things that had to happen if we were ever going to get firearms law reform in Canada. And first of all, uh, Canada was going to have to elect a non-liberal and a non-Tory government because both of those uh, political par- parties, both of those political movements, uh, both had bought into the civil disarmament agenda and had basically uh, identical gun control policies. So we, we, we had to elect a, a government of a different stripe. Next, the, the, the law was going to have to be public, publicly demonstrated to have failed. And with, with those two things, uh, at that point, it would be possible to actually achieve firearms law reform in Canada. So I, got, I was involved with the Reform Party. We, we, did, uh, we did change the uh, political system in Canada during the 1990s, but what, what we did get was uh, a majority Liberal government in 1993. They got elected. They had an absolute majority in, in Parliament, and they believed the, the mandate from Canadians to legislate, and that's when Bill C-68, or the advent of Bill C-68 came in. They basically took Bill C-17, the previous legislation, was, which was still in the process of being uh, implemented at the time. This is like uh, within the scope of a couple of years. 
you have to remember. So a federal election, uh, the, the new law is still in, in the process of being implemented. We've got a new federal government and immediately they uh, undertake a, a legislative agenda uh, against firearms. Now, they already have yeah. the template in Bill C-17. Break in any time you want and, and ask a question. Yeah, no, no. No, that's fine. I was, lots of information. I just, I just going back to when you spoke about I answer. Uh, yeah. I think one of our ladies over here, old Rebecca Peters, was a uh, she's a Australian, was a big proponent of I answer. And I remember uh, watching a, yeah, yeah. I remember watching a uh, video where she debated Wayne Lapierre from the National Rifle Association. And yeah. every time I'm just shaking my head, thinking oh, I can't, I can't believe this woman's Australian and trying to, <laughs> trying to change our gun laws constantly. And you know we're always under attack here. But tell us about the Canadian National Firearms Association. What do they stand for? What do we stand for? I guess to sum it up, we 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 probably stand for natural justice for firearms owners because historically in Canada, uh, whenever a new round of gun control came in. It attacked the basic rights and culture of arms owners in this country. We got a long-standing culture. I mean, we, we've got this. Uh, we've got this throughout, uh, you know, the Commonwealth, and, and we, we basically we share the values uh, with the, uh, the same values with the Americans. You know, people talk about this in terms of, well, you don't have these rights. So that you, there is no Second Amendment here. You know, and we 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 have something better. I mean, we have, we have uh, we have English common law. All of these rights stem from English common law, which is something we all share. Now, uh, the Americans, to their credit, uh, codified this in their constitution because as a result of the revolution, they, they saw a need to do this and very wisely codified it in, in their constitution, and it's, uh, it's, it's served them in good stead for many years. But, uh, of course, in the rest of the Commonwealth, uh, it wasn't thought necessary to do this. Common sense would rule the day. These, are, these ancient rights would be recognized and, and, and celebrated in perpetuity. And, of course, we all know that that didn't happen. Uh, you know, we've got uh, uh, a different set of politi- t- uh, politics today. We uh, have an in- international civil disarmament movement. And, and, and you say, you know, you can't believe Rebecca Peters is, is Australian. In a, lot of, in a lot of ways, she isn't. You know, I, I think she would regard herself as, as a citizen of the world. You know, rather than, you know, holding allegiance to, uh, you know, a specific state or government or something like that. No, I'm a citizen of the world, and I believe that mankind must be disarmed in order that we can uh, pursue a progressive agenda. And there's, there's people in every country uh, that, that do this. Of course, Wendy Suki here in Canada and uh, uh, Sarah Bradley in the United States, although she's not particularly active now. But yeah. uh, in every country of the world, this is present. Sometimes I wonder, Blair, where these people come from. We've got a big... Uh, political party here in Australia, or they're probably the third biggest party called the Greens Party, yeah. and they are very, very, very smart. They're very cunning. They like to. They're very. If you don't basically agree with them, you're nothing, and that includes major socialism and yeah. also taking away firearms from uh, their owners here in Australia. Absolutely, but uh, I just don't know where they breed these type of people that honestly want to keep taking away people's rights. I mean, at well, least at a personal level. Well, we, we, we have Greens in Canada, too. I mean, they've only got one seat in Parliament, and they're not generally seen as a serious party, but it's present everywhere. But I, I, I do have to identify one thing that has, has, has really, uh, what really affected or really changed uh, the entire game in Canada, and that's uh, what happened in 2006. And that was the federal election in 2006, where there was basically a political paradigm shift in Canada. 
previous to that, uh, we w- we had one progressive government after after another, uh, uh, basically starting from the, the late 1960s, mid late 1960s, where uh, the, the uh, uh, Liberal Party of Canada adopted uh, you know the progressive movement philosophies of uh, internationalism and civil disarmament and that sort of thing, and it, it sort of progressed through the 1970s under Pierre Trudeau, who was a well-known progressive and. Uh, it really changed the political makeup of Canada for a lot of years. And I say, you know, the Progressive Conservative Party essentially adopted the same agendas. And it wasn't until we had those, well, I guess there were two paradigm shifts. I mean, there was the advent of the Reform Party of Canada, uh, which which basically uh, uh, cut the support from uh, the Progressive Conservatives, who basically became more abundant and finally uh, ceased to be a party. And... Uh, Redefine the conservative movement in Canada, and then the uh, the election of that conservative government in 2006. It was a pivotal election because um, that was the election that uh, the then Prime Minister uh, Paul Martin announced that uh, if re-elected, uh, he would uh, enact a national handgun ban in Canada. So right. we were working towards, gradually working towards the conservative government because we, we needed farm law reform. We wanted farm law reform. And the only way that was going to happen is uh, if we elected a non-liberal, non-Tory government. The new conservative party was sort of cut from a different cloth, had a lot of Western reform values. Um, the red Tories in, in, in the party were, were basically neutralized. They were removed from the equation. So we had an, an, uh, a new conservative party based on, on, on fundamental conservative values with firearms law reform uh, as one of its uh, base policies. And, and that was really important. We elected them in 2006, uh, basically in, in the face of a national handgun ban. And uh, if that not ha- had happened, I, I, I don't want to even speculate on where things would be now. Exactly. Mate, how can this talk about the, the Canadian National Firearms Association? Uh, how can they help their members? Uh, generally... How we've historically helped our members, there's a lot of confusion about uh, Canadian farms laws, not only from farms owners themselves, but also from, you know, uh, you know people like uh, law enforcement and even crown prosecutors. We get a lot of wrongful charges because they just don't understand the Farms Act. They have a lot of uh, uh, misunderstanding of it and a lot of... Uh, preconceived notions about what constitutes a farms and fence in Canada. So what we, we get a lot of is people contacting us with, uh, you know, with assistance for charges. We have a large legal library. We, we provide legal precedent referrals for lawyers, that sort of thing. So that basic type of assistance to not only members, uh, but also anyone who's, who's found, found themselves run afoul of the farms laws. Uh, we also uh, are involved in, in running and funding cases of national importance, uh, that have a, a potential to set very good precedent uh, for farms law reform. Um, whenever they introduce this legislation, uh, it always seems to be full of holes. Like I say, it's, it can generally be characterized as poorly conceived, badly implemented, and the idea is, well, we'll just let the courts work it out. You know, the, you know, these are the fundamental principles that we want to impose on Canadian law, and anybody who gets sort of caught up in it, well, that's just your problem. You shouldn't own a gun anyways. You have no business owning a gun, and if you want to, then you're going you're gonna to have to be pay particularly close attention not to run afoul of the law. But even if you do, uh, it's no guarantee that uh, you won't be uh, arrested, charged, or have your firearm seized. So we, come, we find ourselves coming in, uh, a lot of times coming in after the, the fact and actually explaining the law to uh, you know, firearms owners, members, uh, crown prosecutors, law enforcement, that sort of thing. Getting charges uh, dropped, getting charges stayed, that sort of thing, and uh, also uh, getting involved in those big cases. We, ha- we had a, a case recently uh, which was particularly important in, in terms of uh, self-defense with a fireman, uh, fireman Canada. 
And that was the Ian Thompson case. Ian Thompson was a gentleman in uh, Port Colborne, Ontario. Uh, he had a dispute with a neighbor, which uh, resulted in his neighbor uh, getting some friends together and uh, attempting to firebomb his house. <laughs> yeah, so uh, wow. Mr. Uh, you know, Mr. Thompson, seeing this, uh, went and uh, retrieved one of his handguns uh, from storage and uh, defended himself. And, of course, the, uh, after the fact, uh, uh, the OPP, Ontario Provincial Police, and the uh, Ontario uh, Chief Prosecutor decided, uh, well, he's tried to use a handgun to defend himself, so obviously he must be charged. And they charged him with, uh, I, I believe it was att- attempted murder, wow. for, for uh, uh, attempting to defend himself. And that's pretty regular in, in Canada, uh, whenever somebody uses a, a firearm for self-defense. I mean, it's automatically assumed that that's illegit- illegitimate, and it's not. There's nothing in Canadian law that uh, precludes you from using a firearm for self-defense, and that includes a handgun. But uh, obviously this is a practice that is not uh, favored by uh, governments, uh, crown prosecutors, that sort of thing. So they, they, they tend to, to charge first and ask questions later. Anyways, we intervened, intervened in the case and provided him with precedent. And uh, he was eventually uh, found not guilty of those charges. But as, uh, you know, it still wasn't over. The uh, law enforcement and the Ontario CFO charged him with firearm storage offenses. They wanted to get him on something. Because even if you can't convict an individual for an offense under, under those circumstances, what uh, CFOs, provincial governments want to do is create a firearms disability for the individual. So basically, manufacture a firearms prohibition. Well, your gun should not have been out of storage. You know, your gun <laughs> should have been in storage. And how could you possibly uh, try to defend yourself if it was if uh, if it was not? So they they went after him for that charge, which was also he was also found not guilty of. And eventually, I mean, he got his farms back and he got his farms license uh, reinstated. But, I mean, it came at a very, very great cost. I mean, he's uh, currently $30,000 in debt to his legal bills. So the process is is the punishment. So even if you are are, are found innocent under the law, they will still punish you with the process. Yeah. What about the two different parties, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party? Justin Trudeau, would he be bad for firearms owners if he got in at the next election? Well, he wouldn't be good, and the way the the farms issue in Canada has sort of manifested itself after the failure of the long gun registry, and after the you know after the Conservatives got elected, everybody knew this was one of their policies. They are going to end the long gun registry, and you know the opposition parties, the Liberals and the NDP, kind of fought a rear guard action against that. And they sort of went to the uh, to Canadians and said, well, well, look, I mean, you know, the the firearms registry is valuable. It aids law enforcement. Uh, instead of getting rid of it, let's fix it. We want to fix the laws. But liberal governments for 13 years had the opportunity to do to do that, and they did not. They used it to uh, to attack firearms owners. Also, the law itself uh, was a complete disaster. Uh, it, its implementation failed. Uh, the process, the, uh, the processes by which they set up the licensing or registration systems failed. You know, even people who attempted to comply could not, because uh, they were just so inept uh, in, in the running of the program that uh, uh, people who applied for licenses often did, did not get them, or got the incorrect licenses, or the uh, the applications themselves went missing. People who attempted to register or re-register firearms. Uh, Often, uh, the information went missing, uh, was not received, and, uh, you know, uh, when, when you've got somebody who, you know, maybe has some precon- preconceived notions about gun control, well, I want to be reasonable, I'll comply with the program, it's the law. 
doing everything they have to do to get in compliance and, uh, you know, the government authority on, on their part not coming through with that, that's going to undermine confidence in the law, which is exactly yeah. what happened. So it basically failed, and it was perceived as, as a public failure in Canada. And that really uh, uh, set in motion uh, the means by which to, uh, to uh, uh, introduce firearms law reform. And, and, of course, that process started after the Conservatives were elected in 2006. So anyways, yeah. in the first two parliaments, they only had a minority. They could not pass legislation uh, without the assistance of the, uh, the opposition parties. And they weren't going to do that. And finally, when they achieved that majority government, this finally gave them the initiative and the votes in parliament to do so. And they ended uh, long gun registration in 2012. Yeah. It's inter- they, interesting, Blair, sorry to, say, sorry, sorry to cut in there, where why do they always say that you know, having a firearms registry is good for public safety? I mean, we've seen here in Australia, too, that... Uh, we've, uh, or there's a possibility that our firearms registry was compromised. We've had all of a sudden the last probably year, year and a half, a lot of uh, people ha- having their houses robbed purely just to what we yeah. think to be just firearms because they're not taking anything else. They're targeting a, a certain area of the house. They're not taking anything else and they're trying to get those firearms. So how is more information... Uh, giving information to like a firearms registry database how does one how does it make people safer and two i mean what is the purpose of that how is more information better i would have assumed that less information was better but that's just me well well, exactly well the excuse is well the police say they need it (laughs) what for (laughs) well i mean if if someone's uh if if there's a domestic dispute the police will know uh Mm. if someone has a firearm in the house but we, we had the same, you know, sort of excuses flo- floated here, but it came back that, well, the standard police policy in Canada is there is always a firearm present until it's proved that there's not. So, exactly, you know, they, exactly. they already had, they already had a uh, policy to account for that. You go into a house, you don't know what's inside there. Assume that there will be a gun and act accordingly. Exactly. Uh, number two, uh, you know, as, as far as uh, letting police know that uh, somebody owns a farm and what type, type of farm they own, they pull up to a residence, they do a search of the, uh, the address, and it comes back clear, no firearms. Does that prove that there's no firearm there? You're, you're giving them a false sense of security. Yeah. So one cancels the other out. Well, what it really is, I mean, what, what we, we all know what firearms registration is. It's a, it's a, pre, pre, uh, sorry, a prelude to confiscation. And in Canada, that, uh, through the classification system, it's, uh, it's register, restrict, prohibit, and then confiscate. Uh, you know, we all know that's the end game based on the uh, political possibilities of the day. And, you know, the excuses that these type of things, and the same excuses are used in other places like the United States for, you know, uh, ballistic uh, fingerprinting and that sort of thing. And I believe there's still some states that keep uh, cartridge casings in a registry so that if a cartridge is uh, uh, recovered, recovered in, a, in, a, uh, you know, in the aftermath of a crime, they can, you know, compare it with their registry of spent cartridge cases. I mean, it's all complete lunacy, but, you know, for people who do not understand firearms, uh, who have a lot of misconceptions about firearms, it sounds good because, you know, we all want to do something uh, to stop gun crime, you know, the criminal misuse of firearms. Why would we not want to, to assist in that? But the, yeah. the common methods uh, that are floated, especially these days politically and everywhere, uh, don't serve that purpose. They serve the civil disarmament agenda, not, not uh, crime, contro- uh, crime control or, or violence interdiction or anything like that. 
Yeah. Does the um, does the uh, NFA or the Canadian National Firearms Association? I'm going to call it NFA from now on. It's just a bit easier. We call it. We call it. We call it NFA. Go right ahead. NFA. Perfect. Do you have any rangers? Because I mean, we have one of our biggest organisations over here, the Sporting Shooters Association of Australia. Yeah. They've got rangers. They do we're training. A, we're a different. We're a different kind of organisation. Uh, yep. We 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 don't really run shooting programs. We're basically a, a political and a legal organisation. We do ensure yep. uh, the majority of uh, uh, gun clubs and and rifle ranges in Canada. Most gun clubs and rifle ranges of Canada are independent. Uh, they're set up by a, a group of individuals who basically incorporate themselves, buy land, lease land, and uh, operate gun clubs on it. Uh, we do. We are the principal insurer for those clubs, though. Yep, true. Okay, fantastic, mate. What's the cut? Like, uh, let's talk about uh, the gun laws vary from province to province. And if someone come over there, what would be the best? Uh, what would be the best uh, province to live in for gun owners? Okay. Uh, well, they don't really vary by province by province. It's a national law, okay, but yeah. there are minor, minor sort of uh, uh, minor sort of uh, variables province by province. Uh, generally, it's accepted that uh, Ontario and Quebec are the most restricted provinces, and Western Canada being the least restricted. They're all operating off of the same federal law, but uh, part of that law gives uh, great policymaking uh, powers to uh, provincial chief firearms officers. Uh, when the law was imposed, uh, it was envisioned, envisioned that uh, a chief uh, provincial firearms officer would administer the law in that province. And at the time, uh, provinces were uh, given a choice. Well, you can either opt into administering this law. If you support the program, opt into administering it. If you don't, you can opt out, and the federal government will uh, administer the program in your province. And uh, the majority of the western provinces opted out because they did not support the law. Uh, uh Ontario and Quebec uh, opted in because uh, ideologically, the, uh, you know, the makeup of the provincial governments of the day was very anti-gun. They supported the program and, and they wanted to participate in it for their own uh, for their own ends. So the provincial CFOs there answer uh, uh, not only to the feds but also to the uh, the uh, provincial government in terms of policy and the implementation of policy, development of policy. So. Um, so you get more restrictive interpret- interpretation of the law in Ontario and Quebec and, uh, you know, sort of less as, as you had west. Unfortunately, the Ontario and uh, Quebec CFOs do have uh, sort of influence over the uh, the other provincial CFOs, and we've seen that progressively happen since the law has been implemented since the 1990s, where in Western Canada initially provinces opted out we had relatively uh, uh, l- relatively less restrictive interpretation of, of some of the uh, of some of the regulations and, and gradually that's sort of ramped back up again at sort of the, uh, the the behest of the Ontario and Quebec CFOs who are leading leading that national agenda you know it's funny I mean pre- previously we were, we were fighting the federal government over this uh, more and more uh, since the uh, uh, conservatives were elected in 2006 we find ourselves fighting uh, you know the firearms bureaucracy, the CFOs, and 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 now the RCMP. Now that that the uh, the the program is under RCMP purview. Okay, all right. We're just going to go to a quick break. We'll be back with Blair Hagen, Executive Vice President of the Canadian National Firearms Association. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Do you hunt deer and want to learn the correct techniques for a quality wall mount and premium eating venison? SSAA Sydney Branch provides hunter education courses to help you become a better hunter and to utilise harvested game in the most effective way possible. 
course content includes gulling, butchering and caping from experienced hands-on instructors using locally harvested deer. There is no gear required and also includes a barbecue lunch. Courses are held every first Sunday of each month with an 8am sign-in for a 9am start. Course running time is approximately 6 hours and the venue is Silverdale Rifle Range. Cost is $50 per person, so call Andy Mallon at Silverdale Rifle Range on 02-4653-1440 or visit www.sydney.net. G'day, I'm Robert Borsak from the Shooters and Fishers Party and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. The Shooters and Fishers Party have been delivering for Shooters and Fishers for more than 20 years. We've reformed the New South Wales Game Unit to manage hunting in state forests, returned duck, quail and pigeon hunting and delivered more than $15 million for new and existing ranges throughout the state. And we're not done yet. With your support in 2015, we will protect your rights. To find out more about our campaign, please visit www.sfp2015.org.au. The Sporting Shooters Association of Australia proudly presents Australia's largest event for the sports shooting industry right here in Perth. The Shot Expo, December 6 and 7. For the true enthusiast, the Shot Expo showcases the professionalism and commitment to safety of sports shooting in Australia. Safety and training demos, ethical hunting and conservation, outdoor camping and archery, it's all on show. The Shot Expo, Claremont Showground, December 6 and 7. Pay on the day or go to shotexpo.com.au for sponsors, exhibitors and online bookings. All right, Blair, mate, tell us about, I mean, let's talk about uh, what type of firearms actions uh, you can own in Canada. What, what can uh, Canadian gun owners legally own? Because in Australia, um, we're pretty much uh, only can have uh, bolt action. Uh, we can have uh, semi-automatic pistols, which is quite interesting, uh, considering a lot of crime is with uh, pistols. But we can have bolt actions. What else can we have? Lever actions. We can have pump action, but only in centre-fire rifle, which... For some reason in 1996, I'm not, I'm not sure why they left that in there, which is still good for us, but we can't own you know, our AR-15 style rifles or any semi-automatic rifle, any semi-automatic rimfire, no pump shotguns and no semi-automatic shotguns. You can, under a certain type of license, if you're a, you know, like you're a farmer and you have a piece of land or you're a, um, a pest controller running a business, you can own some of those firearms, but generally to the major consensus of firearms owners, you can't own them. So what can you own in Canada? Well, as, as I said before, uh, you know, with the, the farms prohibitions that took place in Canada, nobody really lost anything. I mean, if you managed to wade, wade your way through the regulations uh, and, and got registrations for things, you were grandfathered for what you what you owned. So you, you still have grandfathered machine gun owners in Canada who actually own fully automatic firearms. Um, things like converted automatics, when they brought that law in, a, a lot of people uh, converted their uh, yeah, machine guns and select fire rifles to semi-automatic only to avoid the registration and the prohibitions. Government uh, eventually prohibited those, but if you held a registration, you kept that. Uh, there are uh, uh, handgun prohibitions, and that's based on caliber and barrel length, 2532 ACP uh, handguns prohibited by caliber and barrels, uh, handguns with barrel, short barrel handguns with barrels under four and a quarter inches uh, prohibited. You held a registration, you kept it. Uh, other than that, uh, handguns are restricted firearms in Canada, require restricted uh, firearms license and registrations. Uh, certain semi-automatic rifles are uh, restricted, in principle one being AR-15s, uh, probably the most popular rifle in North America right now. Restricted in Canada, you must hold a registration for it and can, can only be shot on, on uh, an approved range at a gun club, that sort of thing. Uh, 
short-barreled rifle rules, uh, semi-automatic uh, centerfire rifles, barrels under uh, 18 and a half inches restricted by barrel length. So you get things like uh, ACRs and XCRs. In Canada, uh, with, in both restricted and non-restricted classes based on barrel length, of course, the non-restricted versions being uh, more popular because you can bas- basically shoot those anywhere it's legal to do so, restricted ones restricted to a range. Um, what else? Uh, bolt actions, uh, you know, uh, rim fires, center fires. Uh, uh, so if, so- if somebody wanted to hunt with, like you said, the uh, having... Like we've got a similar ra- uh, rule here. We can't, yeah. you know, hunt or take a handgun to a private property. We can't use them on a private property. Yeah. We can't hunt with a pistol on private property if we wanted to, as say, yeah. uh, protection. Um, with those AR-15s, can you hunt with them in Canada? No, no. Currently, it's not possible because the, yeah. uh, of course, the chief arms officer will not off, uh, will not issue you an authorization to transport it for that purpose. Okay. Uh, right. I mean, it's yep. it's, not, yep. it's not based on the the, the uh, re- uh, restricted nature of the registration. It's based on the control of the movement of the firearm. So basically, mm-hmm. if you have one of these these things, you're authorized to uh, take it to any range. And uh, I mean, the authorization authorizations themselves uh, have sort of been used as a tool by C- uh, CFOs to control firearms. Uh, uh, and the movement of firearms. Uh, basically, at this point in time, in most provinces, you're authorized to take it to uh, an approved gun club, uh, uh, to to a gunsmith uh, for legitimate purposes. If you're if you're taking it over the border to the USA, you're authorized to do that, but you're not authorized to hunt with it. And uh, you know it was very it was done very deliberately. But uh, you know uh, regular rifle, you know bolt action, lever action rifles, that sort of thing, are fall into the non-restricted category, popular for hunting. Uh, any rifle that is not restricted, including semi-automatics, you know, very popular for hunting. You know, we, you know, we, we, we have a lot of the, you know, the Chinese M14s and that stuff over here, and uh, those are very popular for hunting, obviously. Right. Uh, other yeah. types. Um, Speaking. So if it's, sorry, go on. You're right, go on. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, is there? You just you were talking about uh, the RCMP and police. Now, is there a is there a good relationship between licensed firearms owners and police? I know over here we're a, obviously a Commonwealth country as well, and yeah. you know, I mean, some most police are pretty good, but they're generally on the same page as that. You know, we really shouldn't be defending ourselves with a firearm. Yeah. You know, for firearms, depending on who you talk to, firearms are bad. I'm sure they'd be you know, our police uh, minister and also. Uh, Andrew Scipione uh, would be happy to, more than happy to take our firearms office given sure. us the oppo- given the opportunity. So, what's the relationship like between uh, licensed firearms owners and the RCMP? Well, there is a lot of law enforcement that are shooters. Okay, you know they take a professional interest in it, and you know they they'll, they'll get the firearms license, they'll become involved with that, and you know uh, as a result of that, become educated on the firearms laws and the politics of the issue. That's not the majority of cases, though. I mean, people think, well, if you're a cop, obviously you're an expert with firearms, and it's and it's just not the case. Uh, certainly in Canada, you know, most police officers will never draw their uh, their, their weapon, and th- and that's probably a good thing. You know, I mean, it, it it basically indicates that you're you're living in a relatively safe society. But as a result, I mean, there's the familiar the familiarity isn't there, and the, the state of the law is such that it is so confusing, and 
it's so easy to misinterpret that uh, in a lot of cases, law enforcement will, will do that. They will harass people unduly because they have a preconceived notion of what the law is without it actually being so. And you get a lot of charges and you get a lot of seizures based on that. And it's only after the fact when, uh, you know, lawyers become involved and it gets worked out that people get their stuff back. But the damage is done because I, I, I would have to characterize that the relationship between law enforcement and uh, the farms community in Canada was uh, severely uh, undermined as a result of uh, Bill C-68. Bill C-17, but uh, previously, uh, previously, but also Bill C-68, which created, uh, which basically created uh, an us versus them attitude between farms owners and, and law enforcement. Because, you know, the notion now is, oh, my God, it's a cop and I've got a handgun in my car. What am I going to do now? Uh, exactly. you now, you may be in full <laughs> compliance with the law, you know, your, your, your license, you've got your registration, your authorizations, the guns being tr- correctly transported, but there is nothing to prevent your firearms from being seized simply because the cop has a, uh, a suspicion. And that happens all the time in Canada, you know, and it's the rare occasion where the officer is educated and, you know, knows what he's looking at and knows that there's no offense being committed and lets you go on your way. So there's there's a great uh, there's a great there's a great ignorance of the law and that translates into uh, a, a, you know a generally a poor relationship and uh, hostility on on both sides because you know you know the officer may honestly feel that uh, uh, you know that they want to apply the law you know a, a, hand, a handgun or any firearm is a potentially dangerous piece of equipment there uh, you know there are laws concerning that and they 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 don't know what they are but they 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 want to make sure that public <laughs> safety is ensured. And a lot of the time that uh, involves unduly harassing people. Yeah, it seems the same over here. Do you, does the RCMP, we obviously we reg- have to register our firearms now. Sorry, you probably didn't. When I said Andrew Scipioni before, he was, for anyone listening to the show, he's our commissioner of the New South Wales Police Force here in Australia uh, in my home state of New South Wales. So just to anyone that didn't know that. But um, uh, talking about the RCMP, over here we have a registration and the police often could be once every six months. Some people haven't been, have their firearms storage inspected for some people even upwards of 15 or 20 years. Um, Does the RCMP do mandatory safe storage inspections? Because that happens over here a lot. And a lot of Australian gun owners are, are fairly upset because I mean, when a, like I mean, like myself, I live in a, a, a three-bedroom house, and uh, it's in a block of a lot of other properties as well. And often the police will turn up at your house. Normally, they're supposed to call and ask for permission to come and check out your safe storage, meaning your firearm safe. Um, but often, when they come to your house, if you live in a, a, an apartment-type complex. They normally turn up in a police car that is fully marked. They come yeah. to your property. Uh, a lot of people, and a lot of people just don't know. I mean, fair enough, they're police officers, but uh, a lot of people, they're yeah. letting people into their home for which they don't know who these people are. And people think, oh, well, it's a police officer. Well, they must be good, you know? So yeah, d- d- yeah. does the RCMP do inspections of safe storage uh, either when a person gets a license or throughout the license uh, uh, period for the, the, the permit holder? Uh, generally, no. Uh, first of all, it's just logistically impossible. There is provision in the Firearms Act uh, for a firearms uh, inspector to be designated to perform that type of inspection. And uh, basically, uh, an appointment has to be made. It's got to be mutually agreeable. 
That's it. Appointment yep. has to be made, and uh, in only the area of the uh, the domicile where the uh, the firearms are sto- stored can be inspected. So there is no uh, uh, there there is no uh, uh, general authority for law enforcement just to turn up your door and say, "Yeah, we know you own guns. We want to check out. We want to come in and check out uh, how they're being stored." Uh, you can basically go th- go tell them go get a warrant. So you're, you're not obligated to do that. Uh, however, if you own restricted firearms or, or have a, uh, a gun collection uh, uh, containing re- uh, uh, registered restricted or prohibited firearms, uh, they can, requ- uh, they can uh, request or demand uh, that they want to inspect uh, uh, your storage facility. And that, that, that does happen periodically. But uh, most of those inspections are fairly high profile. They're usually uh, uh, associated with a, a, a criminal investigation or something like that, or the allegations of some sort of criminal activity. So it's not a general uh, right to, to inspect. And, and, and routine inspects, inspections like that don't generally occur. They have happened in certain jurisdictions like Ontario and Quebec. Um, in the past yeah. few years recently, I mean, the controversy over gun laws has never really died down, and it's just been added to by, you know, things like uh, the Ontario Provincial CFO deciding that, okay, we're, uh, we're going to go down our list of uh, firearms license holders, and anybody over 65 who's a senior, we're going to go inspect their, uh, we're going to go inspect their storage facilities, because obviously they're seniors, they're getting on in years, they might be get forgetful, and we want to make sure their guns, uh, you know, are, are correctly stored up, so... Uh, you know, you had high-profile incidents like that, and it winds up in the papers, and it really, it really backfired on them because um, there is a general acceptance that, hey, I mean, these people are in compliance with the law; they know what they're doing, and just to arbitrarily have a, a cop show up at the door and demand to see this stuff is, is probably out of line. So, yeah. it, I, I, I would have to say that it's generally backfired that type of enforcement and uh, it's not been accepted by Canadians in general and they don't do it on a regular basis but uh, again I mean the Firearms Act is kind of like a, a candy store for bureaucrats in Canada you know there's all of these provisions and it's uh, you know you can basically let your uh, your imagination run, run wild in terms of uh, developing policy enforcement so we've had it but certainly not to the degree of like someplace like Australia yeah Australia too Blair we're wasting hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, I, I moved just recently, probably about a year ago. Uh, they did a firearms inspection at my house uh, of uh, uh, my gun safe where, where for firearms are located because we have to store, probably similar to Canada, we have to store our firearms in a safe at all times. And uh, they came, I uh, moved uh, to a new property, and then they came out again about three months yeah. after I'd moved into the new property. And twice they've actually come unannounced luckily sort of haven't been home well not luckily yeah. but i just wasn't home at the time and made an appointment for them to come but we're wasting hundreds i mean we have over in australia i think roughly about eight hundred thousand gun owners in australia and imagine how much just red tape and bureaucracy and money is being wasted on going to a, a somebody's house i mean almost blair it's it's really funny to say this well it's not really but it's actually easier to get a firearm illegally in australia than uh, that then go through all all these red, all this red tape, licenses. How long you've got to wait for a licenses? All this stuff you have to do. And there's definitely people out there that are just, are just saying, "Well, ah, stuff it. I'm, I'm not going to go to this extent. It's just too much red tape, and they'll just go buy it down the street from someone else." Well, well that, that's the that's the uh, the intent of uh, this type of legislation. I, I mean, it's to make it so onerous to actually acquire something legally that uh, you know you you know people just don't want to get involved with it and that you know you reduce the number of people who are lawfully uh, authorized to, to own firearms 
gradually it becomes, uh, you neutralize it as a political issue, and you can pursue a civil disarmament agenda. I think, I think the UK is a, a prime example of that, where they've just like made it so difficult for somebody to legally acquire or own something that uh, there's very few people who do, less of a political risk to legislate against them. But I think it's generally accepted in Canada because, uh, you know, of course, we got, you know, the, the longest contiguous border, uh, you know, anywhere with the USA. And of course, you know, firearm smuggling is is uh, is is highly prevalent. You know, you can make it, put all kinds of roadblocks uh, up in front of people legally getting firearms in Canada, but uh, that demand is always going to be served from somewhere, and uh, principally from the USA. But we also get you know firearms coming in by the container load from from other countries like China. Yeah, yep. completely illegal, and you know. Uh, the CBSA cannot inspect every container that comes into Canada, and it's another method to uh, smuggle firearms. So they haven't really been uh, successful in uh, making a case for for a lot of this type of regulation based on that. And you know, in the terms of you know inspecting, they're in Canada performing those type of Australian type, uh, type uh, inspections. The logistics just aren't there. They don't have the officers to spare. I mean, they could potentially have the ability to do that under the Firearms Act, which we are desperately trying to, to, to get replaced. But uh, at this point in time, we, we it's it's not the same kind of danger as, as it is where you are. Yeah, and in, in Australia too, Blair, I mean, they've created, due to the very onerous restrictions... They've actually created, I mean, even legally just to buy, uh, like the, we, we have a, a, a manufacturer here in Australia who's actually making uh, the AR-15 style uh, firearm, you know, for people that yeah. have the required license to be able to buy one. But what they've actually, and they cost about, I mean, even secondhand, if we've got one of our used guns website over here in Australia where people sell yeah. and uh, use guns, and they're about, just legally they're about 15000 So what they've actually done due to the I very onerous restrictions, yeah, because of the onerous restrictions, They've actually created a huge black market of firearms. I mean, even to the point where people are now manufacturing uh, firearms from scratch and making them, and they're charging, you know, twenty, twenty plus, twenty-five thousand dollars plus for these particular firearms because yeah. of the very, very onerous restrictions. But um, talking about the registry, I know you were mentioning it before. Obviously, the long gun registry. I've been following it as of my listeners uh, and people on the face my Facebook page for quite a while. Um, tell us about the abolition of the uh, long gun registry, and was it generally? What was the reaction from the public uh, for, from getting rid of the long gun registry? Uh, I, I would have to characterize it as, as generally good. It, you know, this was a long-standing promise of, uh, of the Conservative Party. Uh, you know, since they, they they sort of formed in 2004. I mean, it was a major policy plank of the Reform Party and the Canadian Alliance. And when the Conservatives, when all of that was sort of folded into the Conservative Party in 2004, it it, it became very much. Uh, uh, part of the uh, uh, the policy pr- platform of that party, so it was nothing new. Everybody knew this was coming, and after they were elected in 2006, they they knew at some point this was going to end. So it was no surprise. Uh, they didn't have uh, the juice in parliament to do it uh, uh, for two parliaments. They they only had minorities. But after they uh, uh, got the majority in parliament, they knew everybody knew that this was coming, and it was a foregone conclusion. Like I said, the opposition parties sort of fought a last ditch effort to try and save it. Uh, to try to satisfy their supporters, uh, you know, there's there there is a small uh, uh, kernel of support in Canada for those those type of laws. 
Um, and it's and it's basically centered in places like the liberal liberals and the NDP. Uh, the, the Greens in Canada don't really count for much. So the liberals and the NDP party, that's where the, you know the civil disarmament movement has made its big investment in policies. And of course, they don't form government right now. So they knew the conservatives were going to do that. So when it finally happened, I uh, I would say it was a you know a fairly popular thing for the conservative government because they were seen as keeping an election promise. Here is a government that made a promise and and came through and kept it. And even if you were, you know, relatively middle of, of the road on the issue, you probably heard that, well, there were problems. I mean, the thing essentially failed. Uh, something was not right. And the opposition just could not make a case that the law should be fixed rather than uh, 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 repealed. But, of course, they only repealed long gun registration. That was the only reform at the time. And our, our big fight here has been the entire Firearms Act, all of Bill C-68. Yeah. That's uh, basically what uh, a lot of their MPs camp- campaigned on. Um, that is the most dangerous part of the firearms legislation in Canada, this legislation from 1995. And uh, we're still under the same threat to it today than we were then. Just become, yeah. because long gun registration is gone doesn't mean the problem is over. You know, Frankly, that, that, everybody knew that failed anyways. They, they, they failed to register every, you know, non-restricted long gun in Canada that required registration. Everybody knows it. You know, it was only the minority of firearms that were actually brought in for registration. And yeah. uh, when it was gone, it was uh, seen as uh, just an addressing of a failed program. But our, our challenge now is to replace the entire Firearms Act, and that's what we've been concentrating on, well, since the beginning, but uh, especially now that the government uh, uh, looks like it is interested in firearms law reform. Yeah. Speaking, we've our firearms registry obviously still going. Our uh, firearms registry here obviously was it was started very similar time to Canada. Now I've written I've written to my local members of parliament and asked them about how many crimes uh, the firearms registry has solved since its inception. Almost what are we? Almost eighteen years later, uh, seventeen eighteen years later. Do you think the Canadian long gun registry has ever been uh, has ever solved it? Has, has it solved its first crime yet? No, I mean, it hasn't solved any crime. I mean, even the, the restricted uh, firearm registry that it that uh, existed before that never solved any crime. And it's, you know, it's funny, the the, the sort of uh, history of gun control in Canada, uh, the sort of, uh, sort of the way it all unfolded from the, uh, you know, uh, essentially from the, the late 1930s when uh, the registration of handguns was uh, imposed, basically to, uh, uh, you know, to stop Bolshevik re- re- revolution. There were a lot of problems in Canada at the time. Uh, you know, after the war, a lot of unemployment, that sort of thing, and, you know, the, the Red Scare. So, you know, basically, you know, to prevent people from, uh, you know, carrying uh, firearms to protests and demonstrations and that sort of thing, and to keep them out of the hands of the Bolsheviks will require registration, and then all of the good people can still keep their guns and have guns and that sort of thing, but uh, we'll know who has them and we can take them away if uh, we want to. So, you know, when it was sort of a national security issue then, it was sort of changed into a public safety issue probably through the 1960s, you know, through to today. So we've got different terms that we sort of operate under. Does any type of gun control solve any crime? No. We all know that. No, this is, this is only targeted at the lawful ownership and use of firearms. And basically, uh, governments that make the case that we must have these laws uh, to ensure public safety are, are basically saying to you, you're a danger to public safety. And we need, mm. you know, we need the ways and means to control you so you, don't help, so you do not harm your fellow citizens. What does that say to you? Terrible. When, I mean, when, honestly. When, when, yeah. does it, when does it go to the point where I've had a license now, oh, probably, 
I don't know, maybe 10 years, a bit over 10 years now. I mean, when are they finally going to trust people to say, well, you know, you haven't done anything for 10 years? I mean, it's even, it's even uh, stupid but, but they to don't, think... They, they don't trust you. I mean, this, this is a means to an end. Yeah. You know, license the owner and then create a farm's disability for the owner. They issue the license, they can take it away, and they can, uh, they can enact the criteria to take it away. And in a lot of cases, and even in Canada, it doesn't take much for them to revo- revoke a firearms license. Yeah. It really doesn't. So they have the means to uh, create firearms disabilities, license revocations, registration revocations. I mean, if you if you do not hold a valid firearms license in Canada, in the case of a restricted or prohibited firearm, you cannot hold a registration. So your license expires in a lot of cases. Your registration expires to come pick up the gun. Yeah. Is, is, or is your ca- license expires in the case of a prohibited firearm, you lose your grandfathering for that gun. So although you the day before you owned it legally, you know, midnight hit and all of a sudden you became a criminal and gave them the opportunity to confiscate the firearm. Yeah. Is Quebec still trying to secure the registry data for their, for their province? I know we heard a lot about that, and they're trying to get like a, a province registry up and running. How, how's, how's that working so far for them? Yeah, actually, we're going to probably hear about that tomorrow, whether uh, uh, Quebec, uh, uh, whether the Supreme Court of Canada feels that Quebec uh, should receive the registry data. Basically, what happened after a long gun registry ended um, Quebec, which probably has the, uh, the provincial government of Quebec, which probably has the biggest ideological commitment to this issue in Canada, uh, at that time was the party Quebecois. It was the separatist government in Quebec, provincial government in Quebec. Uh, they have an ideological commitment to this, and they automatically announced, well, we're going to appeal this. And they appealed it to uh, the uh, Quebec uh, courts, Quebec Supreme Court. Uh, you know, the first time it was heard, it was uh, it was accepted by the court. The second time, we managed to get it knocked out, and then they took it to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, since then, there's been a provincial election uh, in Quebec. The party Quebec law was defeated. There's a new provincial government now, and we feel that when uh, the Supreme Court rejects uh, Quebec's uh, appeal of this, uh, the issue is going to be dead in Quebec, and long gun registration will, will cease to be there. You know, it's funny, after long gun registry ended, it did not end in Quebec. Uh, the Canadian Farms Program uh, continued to operate a long gun registry there, uh, you know, f- for the duration of uh, these uh, sort of uh, court challenges. So in Quebec, uh, people are, are, are apparently uh, still expected to hold a registration for a non-restricted long gun, but the problem here is it's not required by law. So if you buy it, if you buy a rifle or a shotgun at a store in Quebec, they will issue a registration for it, but you're not required to have it by law. this is almost worse than australia blair (laughs) you know and and if you're you know for example if you if you uh, receive a firearm from out of province you buy a you know you're you're in quebec you buy a a a rifle or a shotgun in alberta uh, they ship it to you you're expected to register it there but you're not required to do it by law Wow, this is amazing. This is almost worse than Australia. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, these, these laws and regulations get pretty crazy. And again, they, they all go into undermining uh, confidence and belief in the law. And bureaucrats don't understand it because they're bureaucrats and they, they've got their own thing going on. But, I mean, just regular people who have to operate in the real world, when, you know, these sort of requirements are, are sort of presented to them, they go, this is, this is nonsense. It's not even the law and you expect me to do this? I mean, come on. Yeah. Blair, tell me about, I found this very interesting when you wrote to me about Canadian firearms licenses. Um, Can you talk to me more about that and what a license uh, entails uh, you to have and the avoidance of prosecution? Now, I just want you to explain that to the listeners because I found it very, very interesting. Can you talk to us about the firearms license in Canada? Yeah, it is essentially a license to commit an offence. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, I, it, currently it is a criminal offense to possess a firearm in Canada. 
the firearms license allows you to do this, but also notifies authorities that you are committing that offense, and they can investigate you to find out which specific offense that you're committing. It's in the Criminal Code of Canada, sections 91 and 92, and that's probably our more, most contentious issue because this is an offense against citizenship to require a mandatory license for the simple ownership or possession of property. This is absolutely, absolutely and fundamentally wrong. You know, uh, you know, without getting into the way governments regulate and the types of, you know, licenses or authorizations they may require for you to do certain things. I mean, a lot of time, you know, the, the, you know, the, the issue of motor vehicles is brought in. Why well, you need a license to drive a car? Why shouldn't you have a license to, to, to have a gun? Well, you don't need a license to own an automobile, well, at least in Canada. Anybody can own an automobile. A six-year-old kid can own an automobile. But obviously, yeah. it's not going to receive a, a, a driver's license to operate it on a uh, provincial roadway, right? That's right, yep. So it's not a criminal offense. The ownership is, is not a criminal offense. Anybody can own one. But with firearms in Canada, you absolutely must have a firearms license if you're in possession or ownership of any firearm. That's still the case today, uh, even after the, uh, the ending of long gun registration. A lot of people don't understand that. You know, They feel that, hey, didn't the government get rid of all of that? No, they didn't. They only got rid of the, uh, the registration component for uh, non-restricted long guns. You're yeah. still required to, to have a license. A lot of people mistake that, and they criminalize themselves by not, uh, by not renewing it because it, yep. is, uh, it is absolutely required by law to renew it. So to be clear, sorry on that, that means really a license, that means at any time they can uh, either take your firearms or try and prosecute you. For, so it only gives you, just, just to be clear to say that, it only, it only exempts you from immediate prosecution from the, for the government or the police or whatever. Is that correct? That's right. Wow. Amazing. I mean, at least over here, if we if we get a license, and m- me and my friend had a conversation the other day about you know registration, and uh, yeah, okay, we go into the shop and we buy our firearms, but we had a conversation about do we really own these firearms, and what we what we meant by that was that at, at any time the government yep. can can say, well, that firearm, like they did with the, was it the Swiss Arms over there in Canada as well, or the CZ58, I'm not sure whichever one it was, we can talk about that, but yeah. uh, basically saying, well, that firearm now, we're going to, that's now banned or we're going to take that, uh, it's now prohibited, and they can come to my house at any time and ask me to hand that firearm over. So it, it does have a lot to do with individual property and the fact that do we really own these firearms when the government can just turn up any time and say, hey, listen, get that, that, that firearm is now prohibited. You don't have a license to own it, and you need to hand it over. Yeah, and, and that's fundamentally wrong. Uh, you know, talk about issues of gun control and what, what regulations that government can, you know, imp- impose on the, uh, the ownership of possession of firearms. When it comes to private property, that, that is absolutely unacceptable. I mean, you either own your property or you are the property, you know, yep. if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, a big part of the issue in Canada: is can you impose a, a a license for the simple ownership or possession and property? And it's our assertion to government that no, you know, we we understand that you will legislate and regulate firearms, but uh, the fact that uh, well, well, not this government, the three previous governments did uh, legislate the uh, the owner the the ownership of property uh, is absolutely unacceptable and has to be has to be re, uh, readdressed through farm law reform. Uh, the yeah. government of Canada has not done that yet. I mean, you know, we've got a very positive reception from them. They we feel that they understand the issue regarding property rights, but uh, they have not uh, corrected that situation yet. No worries. We're just going to go to one more quick break, and we will be right back. Don't go anywhere. This is an ad for the Liberal Democrats. But the Liberal Democrats don't want me to talk about them. They want me to talk about you. 
people should control governments. Governments shouldn't control people. In fact, the Liberal Democrats think the less you hear from the government, the better. Unless you're hurting someone, governments should get out of the way and let you live the life you want. The Liberal Democrats. More freedom, less government. Hey, Mars, did you know there's a place in New South Wales that gun owners, hunters and sporting shooters are very familiar with? Of course, Jason. That place is Horsley Park Gun Shop. That's because they've been around for 30 years and have built a reputation for being the best in the business. They have an extensive range of firearms, ammunition, gun safes, optics and accessories for all your hunting and shooting requirements. And did you know, Jason, they always have bulk ammo specials? Absolutely. The friendly staff at Horsley Park Gun Shop are always there to help you and give you the best advice. Horsley Park Gun Shop are open Monday to Saturday and you can find them on the internet at hpgs.com.au. Come and talk to the team at Horsley Park Gun Shop at 1848 Horsley Road, Horsley Park or call them on 9620 1313. For everything Bushnell, go to Red Fox Outdoor Supplies online store. For a full range of Bushnell rifle scopes, rangefinders, binoculars, night vision, spotting scopes and Hoppies gun cleaning products. Red Fox are also major online retailers for the popular Aussie Maxbox brand and the rest of the innovative products distributed by Eagle Eye Hunting Gear. All at Red Fox Outdoor Supplies. So go to the website redfoxoutdoorsupplies.com.au or phone Greg on 0412-495-712. All right, Blair, mate, we've got probably three or four more questions before we finish off. I know there's some, uh, Canada's a great place, as we spoke about before. I lived over there for about a year and a half in 2003, but at that time I probably wasn't into so much. I had my firearms license then, but wasn't so much into firearms. But let's talk, let's go on to some good topics. You've certainly got some great hunting over there. Um, can you hunt well, on tell pup? Me. I, I, I wish I could. I, I wish I could experience it. But like I say, <laughs> gun activist, no time. No, that's good. What? What? Uh, can you hunt on? Because over here, especially in most states in Australia, not all, you can hunt on public land. So obviously, you can hunt on uh, private property, so farmers or ranchers' properties. Can yeah. you hunt on uh, on uh, public land over there in Canada? Yeah, generally uh, referred to as crown land in Canada. And yeah, y- yes, you can. I mean, if you have the proper uh, the, the proper licenses, tags, that sort of thing, as as is required by the province, absolutely, you can hunt on on crown land. And you know, it's very popular. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, this is part of Canadian culture. Yeah. So, and it never really went away. What sort of animals can we hunt? I mean, you have got some great, certainly some great species up there in Canada. What can ones expect to hunt up there? Uh, popular species probably moose, elk, caribou. Uh, black bear, grizzly bear, white-tailed deer, depending on the province. Uh, wolves, cougar, lynx, and all all manner and sort of varmints. Yeah, is it? Is, I know because I know a lot of guys. I, I presume it's fairly easy. What about if someone like me? I want to I want to fly over there again, and I want to go hunting on public land. Um, is it easy for someone to get like permits to be over there to be able to hunt those types of species? Uh, generally speaking, in a case like that, uh, you would do it through a guide outfitter. And yep. uh, that guide would uh, uh, arrange for the uh, the proper tags and licenses and arrange the hunt for you. Fantastic, mate. Yeah, right, it's def- also possible for individuals to do that, but but of course, uh, you know the the, the type of uh, 
uh, training and, and necessary, you would actually have to be in Canada to receive to uh, to uh, qualify you for the uh, for the proper licenses. Yeah. And let's say, let's say uh, Blair, someone came over there, like myself. Or let's say someone moved over there, or they were coming over there. They married someone, or whatever it may be. Is yeah. it hard for an international person? What do they have to do to be, to become a licensed uh, firearms holder over there? Do they have to be uh, you know a citizen for a certain amount of time? Do you have to be a citizen? Can you come there on a, on a visa and get access and use firearms? Or what's generally the process there? Mm-hmm. Or you're not sure. You know, there's, there's no citizenship requirement. There's no residency requirement uh, to get a Canadian firearms license. Uh, all you have to do is uh, take the Canadian firearms safety course, pass a criminal background check, and you can receive a license. You don't have to live here. Uh, you don't have to be a resident here. Uh, all you have to do is, 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 is that step. You know, a lot of Amer- Americans get uh, Canadian uh, firearms licenses if they want to purchase firearms in Canada. Uh, yeah. They want to use firearms in Canada. Uh, makes it that much more easier to do. So, like I say, anybody can do it. Yeah. I've got a good question. Um, this is very interesting, actually. Surrounding purchasing of firearms now, or sorry, and licensing, going back to licensing just for one sec, because over in yeah. Australia, normally we have roughly a 28-day cooling-off period when applying for a license. We have to do a safety course to get that license. So generally from doing that and becoming a member of a club which is mandatory or a shooting club, because we've got to have a genuine reason over here in Australia to own a firearm. It's completely ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. normally but by the time someone does their safety course, you know, the 28-day cooling off period, normally two weeks to process. Before someone gets their license, I mean, at the earliest, it would be about six weeks, maybe seven, even up to eight weeks. Yeah. I've heard of it for some, some states in Australia. It's, 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 it can blow out to even eight months to get this done. Um, and another three months, probably longer than that, to actually obtain their first firearm. So generally for a person wanting to get a firearm, it could be up to six months before they own their firearm. In Canada... Yeah. If somebody, how long? What's the general length of process to get a license, and how long before you can own your first firearm? It it it, it varies. Uh, generally, they advertise twenty eight days uh, for the uh, uh, the licensing process, but uh, you know this is a bureaucratic uh, uh, bureaucratic process. Uh, generally, it takes about three months uh, from uh, start to stop, including the course. Uh, there are they have to check references, especially if you're a new applicant, that sort of thing. And there's there's a lot of logistics involved in in it. Two le- levels of checking: one at the federal level, and then one at the provincial level. At all, with the uh, chief provincial firearms officer actually signing off on the approval of the uh, the license. Yeah. Okay. So uh, there's that. But again, I mean, it's it it can be a long process in Canada, depending on uh, depending on who you are and when you start and what your circumstances are. Yeah, in Australia too. When we this is the interesting thing, Blair, about Australia too. When we actually apply, once we once we're licensed up, we're we're a licensed firearms holder. We can't actually still go in and buy a firearm. What we have to do in all states of Australia is put in what they call a permit to acquire. Oh uh, boy. Which, yeah, which costs us, which costs, depending on the, on the Western Australia over on the far west coast there, they've got the, I feel sorry for them, they've got the most draconian gun laws. I mean, just for them to acquire a new firearm, to get a permit to acquire from their firearms registry, I mean, I think they're up for uh, an addition onto their license is about $160, where, oh my God. I, yeah, over where I am in New South Wales, it's only, it's $30. So we basically fill out this form, what type of firearm we want, we send it back to the registry they normally take 
depending. If you, if you already have the same firearm in the same class, so like you, you, you've got a bolt action and you're buying another bolt action, yeah. uh, then, then there's, there's only the, the waiting period for them to process it and send it back. So normally a couple of weeks. But once you've got a firearms license in Canada, can I walk, once that comes in after, say, three months, can I walk in there and just purchase two or three firearms? Do, do you have the similar sort of system? How does it work when you're purchasing firearms after you get your license? Uh, non-restricted, it would be instant. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, there's there's two things. After the registry was uh, was ended, uh, of course, when the registry was uh, was in operation, there was uh, there was an extra an extra step. Uh, basically, uh, the firearm had to be transferred to the individual before the individual could uh, take possession of it. And you know, in a lot of cases, I mean, this again a bureaucratic process, and it didn't happen instantaneously. Uh, but uh, after registry ended. Uh, all that was required was a valid firearms license, and there is also the option for the business or the individual transferring the firearm to do a license verification. As if you know, holding it in your hand is not verification enough. You can do an extra step. It's not required by law, but it's an option. So in the case of non-restricted firearms, it's instantaneous. In the case of restricted firearms, there, there's two levels of checking. Uh, of course, there's the registration or registration certificate, or the approval for the uh, transfer of the firearm has to be granted by the chief firearms officer. So it goes through two processes. It's processed at the federal level, in uh, Miramachi, New Brunswick, yeah. uh, where they're based out of. Uh, once that level is done, they send the file electronically to the chief provincial firearms officer who does a second check and then finally approves the transfer. Now, depending on processing levels, I mean, this could take anywhere from one day to two months. Wow. Okay. I mean, I've, uh, I've had transfers approved uh, the same day. You know, when, you know, processing levels have been relatively low, uh, if it goes seamlessly, it can happen almost instantaneously. But uh, generally speaking, if there's a, uh, if there's a problem, they're flipping the system because the, you know, the same system that uh, processes uh, approvals and registration also does, you know, approvals for licensing and that sort of thing. And it's where, where they're allocating their resources on that day. Yeah. So it could be done uh, same day, general, uh, it's about three to three to ten days for uh, for restricted farm or prohibited farm or mm. or it could take a couple of months in a in a in a province like ontario or, or quebec which has uh you know which may have a wider gun con- control agenda and may uh, put more requirements on the cfo before actually approving the transfer yeah that's a bit upsetting blair to say ontario because i really liked when i was living in toronto <laughs> yeah yeah I, I guess i guess i wouldn't really like that too much if i was ever to come back and stay there again so <laughs> yeah no it, it, it's sad because there's a lot of shooters in ontario but again the politics uh, of the province dictate that uh, provincial government's largely elected out of you know southern ontario toronto that sort of area yeah very and, disappointing uh, Mate, uh, t- Blair, tell us, mate, to finish off, tell us a story. I want to, maybe some, obviously, you know, you advocate for shooters, maybe. So maybe one of those stories. Can you tell us a story either about yourself or something that you've done where yeah, that sort of sticks out in your mind as, as, as something that you've really, really enjoyed? Maybe you've helped someone or, or a personal accomplishment story. Just sort of to finish off, I always like to share a story from my uh, guests when they come on the show. So can you, can you tell us a story about something that sort of sticks in your mind as the best day in Blair Hagen? life uh, I, I would have to say that was uh, January 22nd 2006 and that was uh, election day 20 uh, uh, election day 20 2006 uh, because prior to that I mean we you know a couple of couple of things happened they imposed this law uh, among many laws uh, in the UK Australia 
uh, and the United States uh, back in the 1990s, and they were they, the, the government of the day was hell bent on imposing it. And of course, it started to fail because the law was poorly conceived, badly implemented, and uh, that became widely known in the public. But uh, the political, uh, the impetus for political change didn't exist. And as long as the liberal government that imposed this was the government, nothing was going to change. So we made progress uh, fighting it. Uh, the Auditor General of Canada's report in 2002, which uh, exposed the 500% overspending on the program uh, basically uh, ended the political credibility of the program. No longer had the uh, no longer had the uh, credibility of support from Canadians after that. But still, Liberal government of the day was committed to implementing it, and they continued on. So uh, gradually, we uh, reformed our political parties uh, uh, into the Conservative Party of Canada, which uh, you know had uh, basic fundamental rights, pro- private property rights. Uh, and the rights of firearms ownership uh, as, as part of their policy platforms. And then the work began to uh, get them elected, because as long as the Liberals uh, uh, were government, they were, there was going to be no firearms law reform. And we were going to go down the, we're going to, we were going to keep going down that road to civil disarmament. So that, that pivotal election, 2005-2006, in the face of an impending national handgun ban, do or die, and uh, we did it. Uh, we we, oh, we managed to break 13 year, years of liberal rule. We elected the conservatives. Uh, the uh, the demand for the handgun ban disappeared almost overnight. That was the last we heard of that. <laughs> and and the uh, the gradual uh, reform of firearms laws in Canada since then. Uh, you know the very uh, 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 great. Uh, Legal, uh, the very great political precedent in the ending of long gun registration proved that you could uh, pursue firearms law reform in Canada and it wasn't going to be politically dangerous. It was very popular uh, for the government to do that. And the reforms uh, that apparently are still coming, we just got an announcement of uh, new reforms uh, uh, to the Firearms Act today. Now, we're, we're, we're still in, in the process of an a- analyzing that, but you know they're being advertised as, as doing this to reduce reduce the burden on you know law-abiding firearms owners. And you know I, I got to say I mean you know when I, when a government is using that kind of language, I mean it's a positive thing. We have not achieved our goals in terms of uh, uh, replacing the C68 Firearms Act, but I, I feel that we can do it now because uh, firearms law reform is is possible politically in Canada. Well, let's hope the Liberal government of Canada don't get in for a very, very long time. What do you think, Blair? Yeah, yeah. I, even so, I mean, I, I feel that even if that were to happen, it would not be good for the farms community because they wouldn't have to legislate against us. They've already done that. That legislation is in place, and the farms bureaucracy can use that uh, to target farms owners in this country. So they wouldn't have to legislate against us anymore. They already have the legislation they have. But the political situation has changed uh, to the point where uh, doing so would be dangerous for them. And they understand that because, uh, you know, ideas were floated out. You know, the recent Liberal Party convention in Montreal, uh, you know, the youth wing of the party said, uh, we want to adopt a policy of Australian-style gun control laws. Okay, let's all vote on it. And it got voted down because uh, the, the former Liberal Solicitor General, Wayne Easter, Wayne Easter, got up and said, look, we lost 60 seats in the last election over this issue. And if we keep going down this path, we're not we're not ever going to get elected again. So it's caused them to very much downplay their their sort of gun control agenda, and they you know they're they're very mealy mouthed about it now. Uh, they recognize that long gun registry failed. They say they wouldn't bring it back, but uh, do we know that uh, they're more than willing to legislate uh, against us? Of course we are. And uh, if they want our trust on that, they're going to have to earn it, and it's going to be a long road. Yeah, let's hope they 
you know, like this is going to be cemented. Hopefully the Conservative Party will be there for another good 10 or 15 years longer. Who knows? I, I think uh, they've got a very good chance in 2015. Uh, you know, the, the jockeying for that election is starting now. And, of course, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the sort of movement to try and uh, groom uh, Justin Trudeau uh, for prime minister has been going on for quite a while, too. But, I mean, he's, he's certainly not uh, the, the same man that his father was. I mean, his father enjoyed several governments. Based on the uh, the type of popularity at with Canadians, uh, oh. Justin uh, he's got nice hair. Uh, <laughs> he seems like a very nice guy, uh, but apart from that, his uh, he's severely lacking in in, in, in policy and, and experience. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of uh, real life experience. I think Canadians uh, recognize that, and I don't know if they're prepared to elect somebody somebody like that uh, as prime minister in in this very very dangerous world that we uh, live in today. Absolutely, mate. To finish off, just um, if people want to join the NFA, they want to go on the website, They maybe you've got a Facebook page, which I know you do, but I'll let you talk about that. If they want to, go to, if they want to join, where can they go, what can they do, and what are the details to, to get to those websites, etc.? Yeah, uh, Facebook, Canada's National Farms Association. You'll find the Facebook page. Uh, internet, uh, www.nfa.ca, and you can join online. Blair, I really, really thank you about uh, coming onto my show. I know a lot of us uh, here in Australia have been following uh, Canada for quite some time. I've been following, uh, uh, I've, I think I originally got onto about the Canadian laws through, I think it was Sun News and Brian Lilly, and I really yep. like what that guy has to say, especially Brian Lilly and the byline on I, Sun I do News. Have to, I do have to say, I mean, you know, to. To turn this around, and, and this yeah. goes for any country, you know, there's a couple of things that you have to do. You have to be politically active. I mean, if you if you self-identify yourself, I'm I'm a gun owner. I have a commitment to this this culture yeah. uh, that that we all share. I mean, you have to be politically active uh, to the best of your capabilities. I mean, whether that's running for office and or or, or just or just voting. I mean, that's the most important thing you can do. You got to support your gun organizations because they're fighting for yeah. your rights. Uh, it's also handy to have, have an alternative media, and I know the, the mainstream media in every country in the Western world generally has an anti-gun civil disarmament agenda. Yep. Develop your own media. Develop your own media sources to get the truth out there, because there are people who want to hear it, that share your values and need to be, need to be you know, invigorated and motivated by that. And we've, we've, we've done this in Canada, we've started to do this in Canada, and you can do that anywhere. Because, uh, you know, we've, we've suffered a lot. I mean, we've, we've had our rights and we've had our property taken away from us, and that should not go unanswered, and that should not remain unchanged. That has to be challenged. It has to be turned around so that these people uh, internationally, uh, across the entire world, learn that they cannot, they cannot take the rights of free people. You're and right. that's what Let we are. That's right. Listen up, folks. Some great advice there. I mean, again, seems like, you know, uh, give or take, Australia is very similar to sort of Canada. I mean, you know, uh, good and bad on both ends, but it seems we're both fighting the same good fight. And that's a great advice there, people. You know, start fighting, start getting political. That's the reason for this, uh, this show. That's the reason for having a chat. With Blair today, the Executive Vice President of the Canadian National Firearms Association. Blair, I really do appreciate your time. I had to get up this morning, I think, at about uh, 5.20 a.m. Australian time to have a chat with you over there in Edmonton. So, mate, I really do appreciate your time in being able to talk to me today, share some knowledge on Canadian firearms ownership and that 
you know, Australia isn't too different. It's a political fight on a world scale, and we need to make sure we keep fighting that good fight and get our rights back. Thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.